I will um, start over here. Okay, so hello, friends, and welcome to the Chagura. We have the privilege of having with us our Rosh Bet Midrash, Rabbi Joseph Dweck, for the third installment of his four-part series on Harambam's introduction to the Perek Chelek. For those who are new, welcome. We're doing incredible work at the Chabura, and I highly recommend joining and taking advantage of it all. Some announcements, please God, this Sunday, our publishing house will be coming out with the book on Pesach, and after that, some other exciting secret titles, so get ready to order and stay tuned. This week, Rabbi Dweck was in Miami, and the Chabura members uh, here had the privilege of getting together and meeting him. Uh, Rabbi Dweck was also invited to speak to the Bachurim at Yeshivat Bet Moshe Chaim of Miami, and many Chabura members joined as well. Uh, for those who showed up, thank you. It was great to see you all, and stay tuned for other Chabura get-togethers and events near you. Uh, finally, if you speak Hebrew or live in Israel, I highly recommend joining the Hebrew Israel group, which has amazing lectures and a journal in Hebrew and get-togethers in Israel. Uh, this Sunday, they are having Rabbi Dweck speak about HaMegillah HaNitzchit, the Eternal Megillah. Today's shiur is dedicated for the Refuah Shalema of Anael Batvika, a premature baby who is very unwell. May Hashem provide her a full refuah. As usual, all our classes are recorded and will be available on our website after. If you are listening on YouTube or podcast, please like, subscribe, share, leave a review, and help us share cutting-edge Torah. If you have any questions, please raise your hand or post in the chat box, and please, God, there will also be time for questions at the end. With that said, thank you so much, everyone, for joining. And Rabbi, it is a privilege to have you with us, and the floor is yours. Thank you, Rav Ohad. The privilege is mine. It was wonderful to see you in the flesh in Miami, and uh, and everyone with you, and you and Asaf, and I see Tamar is here. It was wonderful to to see you all. Um, okay, but we are back in Her Majesty's capital, and we are ready to continue with our series on uh, on the Hakadamata Perkhelik. So, as per the um, uh, instructions that I received from my boss, Sina, we will only do this. Uh, this is going to be our last uh, installment for now on this Hakdama, and we will do the Ikarim in its own, in its own uh, presentation, because as I understand the scheduling isn't working when I was in the air, I wasn't able to give the third installment. So we're going to do this tonight, and we will close this tonight, and then we will do the end of the uh, the introduction at another time with the 13 principles, which is what ends this, this introduction, the 13 principles of faith that are famous, that Harambam is famous for. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to share the screen. And uh, yes. Okay. All right. So what we were doing, what we finished with last time was this, this Harambam spoke about Olam Abba, right? He was explaining how it is we should relate to Olam Abba and who makes it to Olam Abba, and so on and so forth. What he wants to then do is talk about the other elements of reward, for lack of a better term, that the Torah presents, that the Hachamim present, in contrast to Olam Haba, right? So that they shouldn't be confused. And he says the following. He says, look, that's Olam Haba. Aval, ha'avtahot ve'hofchan ha'amurim Torah. But the promises, literally the promises, right, or the guarantees, so to speak, uh, and their opposites, which we'll see, right, the negative sides to those things. Ha'amurim Torah that are mentioned in the Torah, inyanam kemosha their nature is as I will explain to you. V'kahu, 
And it is as follows. When God says in the Torah, if you do the mitzvot, I will help you. Right? Where is it? Where we see them? We say that in many places, but we say that every single day. And if you listen to my mitzvot, that I command you today, I'll have the rains come in their proper time. All of the rains will happen properly and help your crops. You'll have, uh, you know, plenty and you'll, 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 you'll reap your harvest and health and so on and so forth. And it says this in many places in the Torah, that we're, are we, if we are to keep our covenant at Sinai, which is the covenant of mitzvot, Right, that we keep the Torah and the mitzvot that Hakadosh Baruch Hu gave us, that we will be encouraged to be able to do it. So notice what Harambam says over here. He says, "Azorcha al kiyuman." What does it mean, "Azorcha al kiyuman"? These are not just rewards in and of themselves. What Harambam is saying is that the nature of these rewards are rewards to facilitate further observance without obstruction. And that is extremely important. And what he's saying is, these are not the ultimate rewards, right? This is not what Olam Abai is. And this is not even, you know, what Gan Eden is or any of that. This is simply saying that if you show your faithfulness to the mitzvot, which essentially is showing your faithfulness to the covenant, to the berit, I will facilitate your ability to be able to keep the berit without hindrance. And to be able to achieve shlemut. And I will aselek me'alecha. Aselek me'alecha means I will keep away from you all of the ma'atzorim. Atzor, ma'atzorim, lashon atzor, right? In, in, in modern Israel, every stop sign says, well, not every, but the stop signs, many of them say atzor, right? Or you're told, atzor. Atzor means stop. What is ma'atzorim uh, here? Things that stop you from being able to keep the mitzvot of the Torah. And what are the things that stop a person from being able to do this, to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu faithfully and wholly, completely? Well, sickness, famine, thirst, right? This is, you know, the, the, bottom, the bottom layer of Maslow's hierarchy. You know what Maslow's hierarchy is, right? As a matter of fact, I think I have a, as a matter of fact, it's worth, you know, it's worth the visuals on that. I think I have a, an actual thing on my desktop with that. I'll open it up for you and show it to you. Yeah. So Maslow pointed out that in order for human beings to achieve fulfillment as human beings, there needs to be a, there is a hierarchy of needs that require meeting in order to be able to get to the top of what self-fulfillment looks like. So one cannot talk about self-actualization, which he speaks about being in broad terms, right? One's actual personal potential, the ability to be able to fulfill even one's creative needs and, and, and output and so on, if a person does not have food, water, warmth, and rest. You need food, water, warmth, rest, security, safety, in order to be able to do any of those other things. And that's what we talk about. We talk about, you know, first world problems. Yeah. 
or when people today are saying, you know, in very, very real terms, you know, I'm sitting and complaining about X, Y, and Z, and, you know, but people in Ukraine, dot, 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 dot. And that's not untrue. I mean, you know, it's a completely different situation, unfortunately. One that we have to do all we can to be able to support and help as good citizens of the earth and to pray for the best that, you know, happens in there as well. It's a very dire situation. It's hard to see, in my opinion, how this is not going to deteriorate into world war. But that's not what we're here for tonight, nor are we here to listen to my opinions on Ukraine and Russia. Nonetheless, it's important to recognize that basic physiological needs are of the utmost importance in order for us to be able to be on any level, higher functioning human being. And there are certain human beings on the planet that just are not capable of higher functions, not because that they're not because they're stupid or lazy, but because they don't have the bottom of the period met, pyramid met, right? So it's important for us also to be able to recognize, I'm saying this again parenthetically, it's not what Obama is saying, but it's important for us to recognize our blessings. The bottom of the pyramid is uh, not a given for many, 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 many people. And you can look at this pyramid and think, well, how much do you have of it? So one thing is when we start to worry about, when we start to complain, for example, about you know issues of prestige or accomplishment and so on, those are not bad things to complain about. And some people think, well, you know, thank goodness I've got a roof over my head and food to eat. Well, no, that is good, but that's not the goal. And there is a very big difference in human life between surviving and thriving. And the two are not the same. One can survive in this world and not thrive. And our goal is to thrive. So what HaKadosh Baruch Hu is saying in these psukim and what Harambam uh, for all intents and purposes, is pointing out in these Pesukim, just so that we recognize how it is that this, this uh, manifests for us, is that when we show our faithfulness to keeping the Brit, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, I will ensure that the bottom of the pyramid is established for you. That it's not shaky ground. Right, the rest of it you've got to accomplish. I mean, I'm not going to make you a personally fulfilled individual. You need to make yourself a personally fulfilled individual. But I can say to you that you will not have obstacles, significant obstacles, in in ways that keep you genuinely from being able to accomplish it. You will not go hungry. You will not have thirst. You will not find yourself in the throes of war. <laughs> who promised that he would take those things away. Why? So that what is the Yidi'ah? Yidi'ah is the top of the pyramid. Right? Yidi'ah is being fully conscious and aware of one's own individuality, one's place in the world, the meaning of one's life and, and purpose and so on and so forth. Right, without encumbrance. That's a that's the top tippy top point of the pyramid. And what Hagadosh Baruch Hu is saying, I'm going to make sure the bottom of the pyramid is intact. And what is that? That too is a form of reward, but reward in the sense of facilitation. Right? I will facilitate your capacity to do what it is that I'm asking you to do, what you would believe should be the right thing to do. 
נמצא שאין תכלית התורה שתדשן האדמה ויאריכו ימים ויבריאו הגופות. I mean, we find then that the bottom of the pyramid is not what the goal of creation is, which is just more of the physical enjoyments, right? Okay, so I have my food, but I have like really good food. Or I've got my shelter, but I have like really, really decked out high-level shelter. Okay, those are still just form, different forms of the bottom of the pyramid. That's not the goal. It doesn't matter how blinged out and nice and comfortable your bottom of the pyramid, uh, you know, provisions are. They're still the bottom of the pyramid, right? The question is how, what's happening at the top, right? What's happening beyond that? Yes, and that's what he's saying. That's not the goal. What the point is, is that these things that the Torah talks about, about making sure that you have your food and that the produce comes on time and that you don't have money problems and all of those kinds of things, those are facilitators. Those are not ends. They're means. And the means are there in order to be able to help you get to the ends. Again, if we use the pyramid as an example, which I think is an excellent one, it's very clear, pragmatic, and 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 uh, and and basic the ends are the top of the pyramid not the bottom the bottom are facilitating right the bottom are means to the ends and what akadosh baruch is saying i will provide you means so that you don't have to worry about the means being the inhibiting factor for you now, on the alternative is the other side of things. Right? If people constantly transgress and show that they are really just not interested in reaching the top of that pyramid, well, then the bottom of the pyramid will not be a stable place. It will be something that constantly shows itself as a problem or an issue that needs to be solved for the people. It says in the Pasuk, in payment for the fact that you didn't serve God in gladness and in a happy heart because you had too much. You just had too much of everything. And so you you got very comfortable in the fact that the bottom of the pyramid was stable and it didn't make you, you, you just kind of camped out there. Didn't, didn't move forward in any kind of real aspiration to connect with the divine. When you think about the, this, this remarkable concept, right? That what HaKadosh Baruch Hu essentially is saying in the Torah is, I'm going to either give you the means to do what it is that you are interested in doing for the good, or I will recognize that you are not fit for purpose. And if you're not fit for purpose, then I'm not going to give you tools to use when you don't know what you're doing, right? And this is the, the true, you know, in any in any business situation, right? In any in any in any um, any business, right? Let's say you have an employee, you own a business, and your business does X, and you have an employee that doesn't really understand what the goal of the work is. Well, you know. You're going to limit the the resources that you afford the employee, that is, if you keep them on and don't fire them, to the degree that they do not know what it is that they're meant to do, right? So, like, you know, let's say you, you, you hire, you know, you have a retail clothing store, right? And you're trying to hire somebody to sell the clothing, and they think that they're being hired to sell, uh, you know, food, or they're being hired to, uh, you know, shine, you know, clean the windows, 
well, I mean, if they don't realize what they're there for and how it is that their job is supposed to be executed, you're going to limit the resources and the means that you give them to do the job until they learn how to do the job. And that's all it is. All right, so Akadosh Baruch was saying, look, I mean, if you don't realize what it is that the whole program is about, then I'm not going to give you the tools in order to be able to function in the program if you don't have a sense or an interest in the program. If you do, then I will give you what it is that you need in order to be able to do that. That's all. Now, I want to be clear. That's not to say that in a fluke or in a random world or in a in alternative circumstance that you won't have people that are successful or not successful. This is talking about a system where everything is intact and the system is functioning. And these are the terms of the system. Right? Outside the system, sure, you could have people that are successful and don't have problems at the bottom of the pyramid. But that has nothing to do with this. It has nothing to do with Akadosh Baruch Hu's interaction with the person. And this particular paradigm of how things might and could work. Now, he's saying so when you find when you realize the, this, these remarkable circumstances, right? What Akadosh Baruch Hu essentially is saying is, I will give you the tools when you show that you're interested in investing. I will remove from you the tools when you show that you're not interested in investing. It will be issues, an issue for you. And you will find it's as if Akadosh Baruch Hu is saying, if you just show me that you're interested, I don't need you to see, you know, I don't need to see a 10 year track record of perfection. Just show me that you're interested, that you are actually wanting to and 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 accomplishing what you engage in doing. Miktzat, miktzat means just a bit. From love, you do it from love, you do it from faithfulness. Azor chal kulam, I'll help you with all of it. I'll keep away, I'll take away from you all of the things that hold any obstacles to you. But if I find that you really just are not interested, you could you couldn't be you, you know you don't want to be bothered with it. You can't be bothered with it. Well, then I mean I'll bring upon you I will keep you away from all of it. I don't want you involved in that stuff if you're not interested. I'll make sure you can't get to it. So that you cannot reach anywhere towards the top of that pyramid. It will, it will evade you constantly. And this is the very simple statement of the Hachamim brought in Perkei Avot. Sechar mitzvah, mitzvah. What is the reward of a mitzvah? Another one. Sechar avera, avera. What's the reward of a transgression? Another one. And sechar here simply means the outcome. Right? What, what does a mitzvah yield? Further mitzvot. A true mitzvah, right? What is an avirah yield? Further averot. Why? Because it creates that reality in your life. You build your life into that place. So if one sets one's life up to do mitzvot, then mitzvot are what come to that person because that's what it attracts. And if one sets one's life up to transgress mitzvot, well, then that's what comes to a person because that's the way that a person sets one's, one's life up. And becomes extremely difficult. I mean, this is truly one of the more difficult things for a person who is quote unquote Hoser just on a practical level. It means completely reframing a person's life and goals and friends. And it's very, very difficult to maintain an old paradigm of life and try to do things that are set in a different paradigm while still in that previous paradigm. It's a very big challenge. 
So what the Torah is saying is that if you're interested in doing it, we will set up the paradigm so that it functions for you. With relative ease. So that's that. That's that's one thing. What did Harambam just deal with? The sechar that is mentioned in the Torah, and that is a facilitation of keeping the covenant in this world, in our lives. Then there's a question with regards to what is Gan Eden. Right? So Gan Eden is mentioned in the Torah. It's mentioned with regards to Adam Arishon, but that's and that's about it. Yeah. But it becomes this concept in Torah. So Harambam here has Harambam's opinion. I'll read Harambam's opinion. Harambam's opinion is as follows. He says, Gan Eden humakom dashen Gan Eden is an actual place on the planet, on earth. That is very, very fertile and and uh, you know and, and wonderful and beautiful. A lot of trees and fountains there, waters of all sorts. God will show it to us in the future. Show us how to get there, right? And people will enjoy it. Ulai says, maybe I mean, we may end up finding some real exotic uh, vegetation there that can be have tremendous medicinal capacities, right? And that it will help us tremendously. We'll have a great enjoyment from them. Aside from the ones that we already know. Like the Galapagos or something. And none of this is impossible, says Harambam. It's entirely possible. It's not out of, out of the question. Even if the Torah didn't mention it, it wouldn't be something so far off for us, reasonable to consider. I will say, for whatever it's worth, I don't think that this is what Gan Eden is. Uh, but this is Harambam's opinion of Gan Eden. So it's important to know what Harambam's opinion of Gan Eden is. I've spoken about this many times before, and this is not the place, but uh, I think that it's it's there are alternative uh, understandings of what Gan Eden is, especially in the way that the Torah presents it to us. About Gainam, what is this Gainam business? Right? Which also is not terribly explicit anywhere. It talks about Gay Ben Hinom in the in the Navi, but not in this way. All right? It says Gainam is a kinui. Kinui means it's a word used to talk about hardships that the Rishaim will experience. It doesn't mention in the Talmud much about the kind of suffering that is referred to. Also notice it doesn't really say anything about after death, by the way. Particularly. Some say Some say the sun gets very close to them and burns them up. They got this from Pasuki. There's a day coming that is burning like a furnace. All of that, however, could be quite figurative. Some say they'll spontaneously combust internally. Right? It says the spirit inside you like fire will eat you. Again, much of this is uh, in figurative terms, but nonetheless, right? There's something about heat and suffering that relates to Rishayim. Whatever it is that that means, not terribly important. 
in my saying, I mean, it's not that the concept has is not important. What and how and so on. So I mean, that's figured out. At the end of the day, it's some concept of suffering to those who do evil. Teriyat metim is the other thing, right? And he says, Teriyat metim, this idea that the dead will come back to life. Yesod mi Torat Moshe Rabbeinu. Interestingly, this concept, he, he says, this is one of the foundational concepts of the whole of Torah, which is extremely interesting to think about because Torah doesn't mention it at all. It's mentioned later in Daniel. Passing. And yet, think about it. Think about where the Hachamim put this concept. We say it every single day in our prayers. We don't begin prayer without talking about it, interestingly. The whole opening of the Amidah refers to this, interestingly. It's, it's extremely, again, here is not the place to unpack all of this. Harabam wrote, I also gave Shurim on that. But nonetheless, what Harabam is saying over here is, is he's clearly saying it is a fundamental principle of Torah. I've had many arguments, not many, I've, I shouldn't say many. I've had substantial arguments with other rabbis who insist that Harambam was only saying this to throw people off and that he didn't really believe this, which I think is ludicrous. I think it's absolutely ludicrous. And absolutely Harambam believed it. That's one of the reasons why he wrote the Ma'amar Tehayat Metim, because people accused him of not believing in Tehayat Metim. So he wrote the whole Ma'amar Tehayat And still people think that. In any case, he says, look at the language here. He says, that One cannot say that one is part of the religious practice nor a connection to the Jewish nation. For a person who does not have a faithful belief in this. What we know about Tehiyat Metim says Rambam, an important detail about Tehiyat Metim is that it's for Tzadikim, not for everybody. I mean, don't make the mistake of thinking that everybody's going to wake up from the dead. Absolutely not. And the Rav Kafir says not, we don't have this particular language in Bereshit Rabbah, but we do have it in Masechet Ta'ani, in the Gemara, that Gvurat Geshamim Tzadikim Ulrshaim Tehiyat Metim Tzadikim Bilvad. Tzadikim Ulrshaim Tehiyat Metim Tzadikim Bilvad. That the rains that fall right, that sustain the earth, that comes to tzaddikim and rasha'im. But tehayat ametim, that's only for the tzaddikim. This is how Rambam talking goes. I mean, think about it logically. How are we going to have people that are considered dead while they're still alive get waking up after they actually die? Because we say that, Achamim say, rasha'im afilu b'chayahim kiruim metim. Right? People that, what are rasha'im? Rasha'im are not people with horns and fangs. They're not evil devils. What we mean by a rasha in the most basic sense is a person who lives a counterproductive life. Right? A person who is not living a life developing oneself and developing the world around them to the capacity that they can, but rather taking from the world and living a, a complacent or counterproductive manner of, live, of, of life. That's essentially what rasha is. So we say about rasha, listen, they're not living. They have a pulse, but they're not necessarily actually living life. I mean, life is living them at best. 
So we consider them not to be really alive, even while they are, they've got a pulse. So if you have people that have a pulse, but are not considered alive after they die, you're going to say they get back up again? Definitely not, says Haram. So Dikim, even in their death, we consider them alive. They've done so much establishing their own identities and oftentimes the world itself, that their effects of life ripple on. They carry ripple effects, even after they're no longer physically here. So they're the ones that come up at Hayat The ultimate idea behind this, uh, and again, I'm saying this only in one line without unpacking all of it, right? because it would take far too long. The idea behind this is that justice requires that if a person did live one's life contributing to the good of this world, even if it is the development of one's own life, one lived to one's potential to a high degree, and in doing so, it is likely that the person helped others around him or her or was able to develop the world in some way. It is fitting that if the world comes to a point of culmination of sorts, that that soul should be able to experience it and see it. That's the idea behind Tehayat As As outlandish as it might seem, although one must recognize, and I say this within reason, right? We are closer today for this to actually happen than any other time in history. I mean, you know, Harambam didn't know about DNA, you know. Nor did the Hachamim have any concept of, of what it might be to be able to reproduce a life. I mean, we, the Jews, are not the ones that are talking about downloading our consciousness into an off, you know, into a hard drive somewhere. That's being discussed in the general world. Yes, it's still science fiction, but it's not that far off. Harambam knew nothing about artificial intelligence. And the questions that we have as to what it is that produces consciousness and one's own self-awareness and so on, and then the questions with regards to that, if one was to download one's contents of consciousness out off of a brain into an external hard drive somewhere and reconstitute the body through saving the DNA, would it be the same person? Well, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Nonetheless, those questions are questions that are quite relevant today, that were never relevant back when, but when you overlay the concept of Tehiyat and Metim onto them, they seem not so, not, not so nuts. Much more in the realm of possibility than they used to be. Perhaps still science fiction, yeah, granted, but nonetheless, give it a few hundred years. In any case, this is the concept of Tehiyat and Metim. And nonetheless, Harambam ends the paragraph saying, what Tehiyat HaMetim is not is an individual living forever. Everybody will die. And it is actually talking about coming back from dying, but not people living forever without dying. And will decompose. And finally, he talks about the days of the Mashiach. And he clarifies here. Now, now all of this, pretty much, except for Gan Eden, really, I mean, there's a little bit there. Harambam writes about all of this stuff. Remember, he's, he's between 26 and 30 years old when he writes this. Right? So this is early, early Rambam writings. 
he develops this and writes more about it in the Mishneh Torah and in the More Nebuchim. Right, so what I'm about to read here, there's it's it's much more robust treatment in the Mishneh Torah, right, in Hilchot Melachi. But he says as follows: He says, "Yemota Mashiach, the days of the Mashiach, Huzman Shebot Tahzor Amalchut LiYisrael." What that means, that's nothing esoteric, that's nothing beyond the scope of a reasonable, normal, regular world that we know. That simply is a political issue. The whole nature of Mashiach is a question of political sovereignty. And that's it. In what capacity? Israel will regain its sovereignty as a nation in the land of Israel. Now, you can understand, right, that when one thinks of the state of Israel today, one is deep, and having read these words of the Rambam, one is deeply inclined to recognize that as the beginnings of Mashiach. Why? Because it's what Rambam writes. It says you need to have sovereignty for the nation on its land. And that, for all intents and purposes, is what we've got. It's not entirely, because you'll see what else is required, but that's, that's why some people call it Rishit Latino, right? It's the beginning of the blossoming of our redemption. It's really hard to look away from that and say that it's not. But if one is speaking realistically, one has to recognize that the entire uh, endeavor could crash and burn, God forbid. I mean, there is no guarantee whatsoever that the state of Israel will survive. And that's important for us to also remember. But nonetheless, it's quite enticing to think that this might be the beginnings of a Mashiach era. Because we've got the first two things relatively down. And whoever is the leading entity, the leading individual of this entity, right, of the sovereignty of Israel on its land, whoever is the political leader of that, what Harambam is calling a king, which was the only kind of leadership they had at the time, although it's not necessarily required that it must be a traditional uh, monarchy, whoever it is that's standing, he'll be in Zion, right, his, his the, the the seat of his of his uh, um, leadership will be in Zion. Vid Gadel Shemo will become quite well known as a political figure. Viagia Likitzvetevel, everybody will know about him because he'll be on the news. Vigadol Al Mamlechet and And this is where it starts to get beyond where we're at, right? He says, and the, the leadership of this particular leader and this entity called Israel on its land as a sovereign people will be greater than that of King Solomon, right? Now, what's the Rambam doing over here? He's saying, look, what is the pinnacle, uh, what is the pinnacle of Israel's manifestation on earth historically? The pinnacle of Israel's manifestation on earth was during the reign of King Solomon. That's indisputable. If, if history is correct, then it's King Solomon's reign. Why? King Solomon had, first of all, the largest land holdings of any king before or after him. He lived in peacetime. There were no wars being fought. And he was recognized by the nations around him to be the most prominent and powerful among the nations of the world. So you have the stories like the Queen of Sheba comes to see him and everybody wants to come and talk to him and hear what, it, what his advice is and thought is and so on and so forth. And there's a lot of interaction between him and the other countries in the world. 
And if you read the Navi carefully, not only is that the case that's going on internationally, but nationally, domestically, Solomon re- restructures the entire governmental system to integrate the whole of his monarchy. Because in David's time, it was much more fragmented. So he creates an entire integrated, an entire integrated system in order for him to be able to genuinely be king of a nation called Israel rather than just tribal entities. And that manifests internationally. So what, what Rambam is saying is that this iteration of the nation of Israel will be greater than King Solomon in its cohesiveness and unity, and for that matter, its influence and power. Now, that too, when one thinks about it, is not insane. Right? I mean, you, you were to think about 70 years ago and say that Israel could genuinely be a world power, people would think, well, I mean, you know, who are we kidding? Today, crazier things have happened. It's not out of the question. And there are all kinds of things that could happen that might cause that. And other nations of the world will make treaties with Israel of peace. And the other nations of the world will serve. Right. So one way of thinking about this although it's starting to wane, right, is how the nations of the world think about the United States of America, right? It's crazy because it used to be, even though people say it much less now, it used to be that they said that the president of the United States was the most powerful man in the world. Or they would say that, you know, uh, the United States is is the most powerful nation in the world. And the opinion that the United States has, or is the United States the policeman of the world? All of these kinds of questions, right? This isn't said about many other other countries. And one has to wonder what that means, right? So that's a question of the of the placement of this particular country within the league, within the world, and the other nations of the world, and its prominence and leadership and influence and so on. Now, what essentially Aram Bam is saying is that would be the nature of Israel, right? And anyone who was to come up and try and, and go against Israel, God would, you know, cut them down and deliver them into his hands. And all of the Pesukim that speak about the days of Mashiach and the Navi speak about his Osher, Osher with an Aleph, meaning his stability and our stability through him, right, through whoever it is that's leading. But it's important to know, Harambam says, nothing changes in the world in terms of its normal conditions. The world is the world is the world, like we know it. The only thing that changes is that Israel will be a powerful, sovereign nation. And it will be peaceful in the sense that it will not require defense from other nations and it will be able to hold itself in its own sovereignty, as it wishes. Which means we won't worry about oppression from outside nations. That's what Mashiach is. As the Hachamim say, the only difference between our days and the days of the Mashiach is that we don't have to worry about the subjugation and oppression of other nations. And there'll be still weaker and stronger people in that time depending on, you know, others around him. But it will be a time of prosperity. And it's very interesting, the things that Rambam here points out is the prosperity that the Gemara basically draws it from the Gemara. It's basically just talking about our West, our normal Western world, right? And what? That you can microwave your lunch, basically, 
is is what he's talking about. So he says, look, it'll be it'll be possible for people to make money by very minor efforts. They'll be able to buy NFTs, and and you know, in, in a few in a, in a few days, but you know, just end up having insane amounts of money as a result. Are they going to invest in stocks or whatever the case may be? The person can do a very minor amount of work and he'll end up gaining a tremendous amount of money from it without any real physical exertion. As it says, eventually you'll be able to get chalas growing out of the ground. Right? Of course, they never saw a supermarket. And that's basically what they're describing. So there's a whole Gemara where Rabban Gamliel is talking about this. And Gamliel says, you know, it's going to be where, where f- trees bear fruit on a daily basis. And one student heard this and said, how could you say that? And Rabban Gamliel got upset at him. And all Rabban Gamliel had to say was, you've never seen a supermarket. You know, you can go down to Tesco and you can practically get any, any kind of uh, fruit you want. It's like growing in the bins, isn't it? I mean, it's really hard for us to remember that the fruit doesn't grow in the bins. It's really nice here because on the fruit, it actually says the country that, that it's gotten, that you know we get the fruit from. So it helps us remember that they didn't grow in the bin. But for most of us, we really don't think about that. We just go to the supermarket and get our fruit. Neatly packaged, nice little cellophane, you know, individual wrapped. This is what they're talking about. If you think about 2,000 years ago, that was unheard of. Unheard of. So they're just talking about the development of the world. What it does say, what it does tell you is that Hamim had a sense of where the world was going. How production was going to function. So it says, and you'll have people that will essentially work and serve and and all of that. Uh, You know, the likelihood is that by by the time this comes around, it will all be automated. There won't be jobs for human beings in this capacity very much anymore. Yeah, so there'll be, you know, the planting and reaping and all that will happen with great ease. And that's why Ka'asa Hachamaze, the Hachamaz Rabban Gamliel, got angry at his student, Rabban Gamliel said all of these things. And the Talmud said, how could you say this craziness? And Rabban Gamliel got upset at him because he thought he was talking literally. When he said the trees are going to bear fruit every day, he didn't mean that literally. He didn't mean that all of a sudden nature was going to change. What do you mean? It was going to be like that. It would be as if. The trees were constantly giving fruit without cessation. And we have to recognize that's precisely what it is for us nowadays. I mean, the, the most average of people have the, the access to, to fruits, vegetables, and foods that the richest people in the world had trouble getting 2,000 years ago. It's unbelievable, right? Not to mention our smartphones. So, so he's giving, he's saying that Rabban Gamliel wasn't saying this in literal form, right? That the children, that this was the kind of world that he was describing. All right, so I'm not speaking out all this. It goes through and he says, The point being, says, We will get respite from the oppression of the other nations that we deal with so much. Which essentially what it's saying is, in all honesty, is that we'll have a respite from anti-Semitism. Because of the strength of our presence in the world. We will stop worrying about what everybody thinks of us and just be us. Confidently and prominently. And there will be a tremendous amount of knowledge in the world. More than ever. It will be an information age. 
in which information will have massive access to all human beings. Question is what they do with that information, but there will be there and it will be there. And the likelihood is that people will know more things in that time than they ever have, the average human being. Right? Also not crazy. War will cease. That's probably the hardest thing for us to imagine. And it says in the Pasuk, and nations will not wield swords against each other. Atomic bombs is another story, but swords, no. And in those days, people will achieve their full potentials. And that's something I want to pause on for a minute and understand. Because think about it, back to Maslow's hierarchy. If we end up living in a world in which the bottom of the pyramid is something that is almost a given and a matter of fact. It facilitates the ability for humanity to start thinking in terms that humanity has not thought of for the majority of human existence on this planet. The very fact that an average human being could have a meditation app, that the average human being can go to higher learning and university, that the average human being is expected to have genuine general knowledge about the nature of philosophy and reason and logic. We take that for granted. That's not the majority of human civilization. First of all, not even today, and certainly not for the majority of human history, but things are moving in that direction. And that changes humanity. And that's why I want I will say one thing about the Russia, Ukraine situation, which is just a very minor thing. Everybody is outraged that Putin has invaded Ukraine. I mean, outraged. As well they should be. But that's new. Invasions were perfectly normal. Again, for the majority of human history. And expected. It's only now that we look at Putin as being an absolute villain for doing it, as we should. But nonetheless, that's new. And that, my friends, is an indication that the world is getting better and better as time goes by. We no longer accept such things, at least not in the open. We recognize it as a globe, practically, as a heinous crime. And that is brand new. It was never the case. Unheard of that it should even be a problem. And that tells us that the world is much better than it used to be. And it continues in that direction. And it's very important to remember and understand that. And not just get lost in what's happening. That doesn't mean that what's happening is not terrible. That's the point. It is. But we recognize it as such for different reasons than we used to. So, he, says, so he says, that's that's how ultimately everything is going to run. The, the nature of war will change. How it is we relate to it will change. We will not live in a state like that for much, for the rest of humanity's presence on this earth. And he says, look, it's important to recognize Now, all of that said, we're not interested in the days of Mashiach so that we can go to Tesco. 
and get food and throw it in the microwave and be happy. That might be a perk, but that's not the goal. And low condition of Kabbalah Susim Nishtebeklizemer. Nor are we interested in riding on horses, right? Thankfully, it's not horses anymore, but nonetheless, right? It's not because we, we want the best cars and the best vehicles and our you know, private jets and all that kind of thing. No. The reason why that Nebi'im looked forward to that time is because it gave us an opportunity to, to achieve our full potential as human beings in our capacity of consciousness and learning and study. To achieve our highest, greatest, and most supreme expressions of self. And in that, our relationship to God. And that is not something that one can do if the lower part of the pyramid is not well and strong. So that's why these things are important, right? That's why Tesco is important for Mashiach. This is not an advertisement for Tesco. Right? HaKadosh Baruch Hu talks about, right? the Nevi'im talk about the closeness of this leader, right? whoever Mashiach will be, and God saying, B'ni Ata, you are my children, this is who you are my son. And our ability to be able to hold of Torah and keep Torah without worries, and not fear, and not any kind of hardship. As the Pasuk says, no longer will human beings teach each other, but God will teach us directly. Again, whatever it is that that means. The Pasuk says, God speaking, everyone will know me. From their youngest to their oldest and greatest. I'll place my Torah into their hearts. I'll take the heart of stone from within you and replace it with a heart of flesh. All of these are statements saying that humanity will rise in its consciousness, in its morality, in its in its ethical behavior. And I'm saying that is occurring. Now, when you have humanity on this level, when they reach this level, when Israel itself is leading on this level, Olam Abba is like the next step away. That's the whole point. I mean, that's that's a level of living that which is which is entirely this. Now, it's important to realize the whole point is to be able to achieve that level of existence that we call Olam Abba, and otherwise it's the work to achieve it. So it's either the becoming that or the being in that state. And therefore, they looked at the ultimate end, the Hachamim. And said, Kol and they left everything other than that, right? Then the Olam and said, Kol Yisrael And here, Harabam is now finally giving his full gloss to the opening Mishnah that caused him to write this entire thing, which is Kol Yisrael Olam That's why it says, Kol Yisrael Even though Olam Abba is an, a, an end, right? It is a goal. Still, one who is serving most faithfully and from love should not do it to get to Olam Abba. 
but rather simply for the sake of the connection and the relationship itself. Because that might be just high levels of uh, ulterior motives. Rather, one should serve in the manner that I explain. We're going to close with this soon. And by the way, Arambam writes this at the end of Hilchot Teshubah as well, right, in more succinct terms. And he says, Now, if a person already accepts, as an axiom, almost, that God did communicate with the Navi and gave us Torah, and through the Torah said to us, these are the value systems by which you should live. So being a straightforward and faithful human being, one has an obligation to live in that way, in the best way he could. Why? Because it's just the right thing to do. And if a person lives that way, well, then he becomes complete in doing that. And in doing so, he becomes a full-fledged human being and removes himself from simply being one of the animal kingdom as another animal on the planet. And if a person genuinely lives that way, genuinely reaches the top of the pyramid on Maslow's hierarchy, really does live in a way that is the best expression of one's life in full consciousness and wholeness of self, well, then they for all intents and purposes are living in Olam Abba. So, okay, whether they actually move into living in a state of that, ultimately, eternally or not, that experience is essentially the experience that a person has of Olam Abba. And that's why it says in Pasuk, don't be like the horses and the mules that just don't, they just are brute physical force, don't really understand or know anything. In other words, what keeps a person from uh, essentially having no guide, aim, or purpose in life are the external things that hold one back, which essentially are like the reins and bridle of a horse that hold the horse back. Don't give yourself over to those things. Don't entrench yourself in the mundane physical aspects of life that hold you back from being able to rise to the top of the pyramid. The only thing that should keep a person from doing anything is one soul, recognizing that it is not fit for me to do this thing, recognizing the truth of things. Rather, a person should be diligent and vigilant in being what one is. That's why he says, Ma shehu, be what you are in its fullest expression. A full human being in full consciousness. It's like a person's got a brain and they don't use it. I always say it's like having a, a, a you know, a million dollar vehicle, right? It's like having a, you know, a Bugatti in your, in your driveway and you drive it again to Tesco back and forth. Well, isn't it a chaval to have that kind of machinery at your disposal, accessible to you, and you use it to drive on the street to do an errand? I mean, do you realize the software that you have between your ears? 
It's it's the most remarkable element entity in the entire universe by many orders of magnitude, and we use it for nothing. We never ever really fulfill, uh, you know, it's 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 even part of its potentials. And I don't mean you know how much of a brain a per, you know, one's brain one do. I'm not talking about. It. I'm just saying just the capacity to use a thinking brain. It's huge. And so that's all I'm saying. Saying be in fullness, what you are. It should be hasarat right? That this, to me, Harabam says, is how I understand there was word, these words, which basically is keeping from us any dangers of falling into the to the to the pitfalls of not being able to live this way. So I'm just going to say these things outside because we're already towards at, at time. He says, look, in this paragraph, Harabam says, as a matter of fact, I'm going to I'm going to write a a book that explains all of the midrashim of the hachamim. And, and by doing that, you'll understand all of their points, and I'll, I'll have put out for you all of the deeper thinkings of Hachamim so that it will be clear and evident to you. Now, the truth of the matter is, Harambam never wrote this book. So he says, Ani atid I'm going to write a book, right? And he says, he never wrote this book, even though he did spend many years trying to write it. And he writes at the beginning of the morning, the Bukhim, he said, look, I said I was going to write this book, but I changed my mind. And the reason I changed my mind is because I realized that it would go against what the Hachamim wanted. The Hachamim spoke about the Midrashim in parable on purpose. And I would have just taken the parable away. And if I would have replaced it with another parable, I would have just been replacing what it is that they put in with the same thing. So I said, I decided not to do it. And instead, what he did was wrote wrote the Morin Nebuchadnezzar which was a much less straightforward (laughs) explanation of things, which was his goal. Then he says here, and again, this is we're closing. Yeah? He says, Milat apikoros. This is important, right? He goes, I want to tell you what the word apikoros means. Mm-hmm. He says it's an Aramaic word. Now, the truth of the matter is, we know that it's a Greek word, and it's essentially a name, right? There was a Greek philosopher named Epicurus. And Epicurus lived in 4th century BC. And what Epicurus, one of the things that he was famous for was saying that the gods existed, right? The Greek gods, but they had no involvement or interest whatsoever in what was going on with humanity. So he essentially said there's no hashgaha. There's God, but there's no interest of God on the world. And interestingly, what Harambam writes in Hilchot Teshuvah, in the third parak, is that one, one element of what we call an apikoros is a person who believes in God, but doesn't believe that God cares about what's going on on earth. And that's really where the word comes from. From It's named after Epicurus. Nonetheless, Arabam says it's an Aramaic word, and the Aramaic means it, it suggests belittling and making light of Torah and the Hachamim of the Torah. The Torah and the Hachamim of the Torah. They use this word in general whenever they want to talk about somebody who doesn't believe in Torah. They just call them Apicorus, right? It's a very easy word to use. They also say that it's language of hefker. Hefker means to treat it without value. Something of, something with zero value is called hefker. Anytime somebody belittles the hachamim, the Torah, they call them apikoros. Svarim chitzonim, what are books that are out, external books, which is what the Mishnah refers to, a person who reads external books. He says, these are sifre minim, these are svarim written by people who have no connection to wisdom and substantial knowledge. Uh, 
and he goes through some of the some of the books over here, which I'm not going to go through now, but we will go through this Bezat uh, Hashem the next time um, we sit when we go through the Yusadot and the Ikari. We'll talk about this and we'll introduce it. All right. There we are. Wow. That is the end of Thank you so much, Chacham. Uh, do we have time for questions? Uh, if people want to stick around, I can do about five minutes of questions. Sure. Okay. Perfect. Uh, anyone have any questions? If anyone has any questions. Yes, Ellie. Um, this might not relate, but um, but you're talking about how the world is generally in a better place. Um, so what about issues like global warming and the environment generally? Let me ask you a question, Ellie. Do you think that a thousand years ago, anybody would even begin to worry about any of that? No. No. Yes, we messed it up because we never cared. But the very fact that that is something that we are consciously concerned about today says to you that we are on a very different level of thought. Mm. A very different level of thought. It used to be that human beings did whatever they wanted on this planet. They didn't care about what really was going on on a global level on this planet. Even the very fact that we can think globally is very, very good. It's a higher level of consciousness, of sensitivity. So we are thinking, I mean, it's the same thing, you know, when they talk about like this, 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 I'm sorry to say, but in my opinion, this nonsense about like tearing down statues of Thomas Jefferson, right? Because he owned slaves. Well, one thing that is, is a problem, and I, I think, again, this is my opinion, right? I think it's a tremendous problem to judge history based on our current set of values and morals and ethics. It's, it's completely inappropriate to do that. One can look back and say, yeah, it wasn't great. But it's also important to understand the context in which they were living. Yeah. And what it was that they knew. So it's important to look at how it is that our minds are shifting, the value systems through which we are seeing things. And that doesn't mean that all of our value systems are excellent. There are pendulums. Right? In other words, a lot of times when we break out of, of previous paradigms, we break out of them in high extremes, which are also need to find their, their balance and calibration and so on, figure out where it is the point. The very fact that we're having the conversations that we're having is indicative of the fact that we are on a very different level of consciousness. How does we see ourselves and understand ourselves? So you look back in, in history, even 100 years, 200 years, nobody was thinking about what are we doing to the environment? They didn't necessarily know what they were doing to the environment, but we weren't thinking in those terms. We thought we do what we need to do as human beings and we take what we need. Animal cruelty. The fact that the queen will not wear real fur anymore. Absolutely not. That was unthinkable. Who would ever think of doing that? What are you talking about? Not going to wear fur. The animals. Who cares? It's a completely different place of mind. And it's a more sophisticated, mature, self-aware state of mind. Thank you. Anyone else? Okay. Isaac! (laughs) Thank you, you everyone, for coming. And uh, Sunday, we have the Hebrew Shur with Rabbi Dweck on the Megillah. Um, And we also have on Monday... The last installment of Rabbi Chaim Angel's shoot on Torah and superstition. So those are two public shoot So no reason not to come, except for Sunday, because that's in Hebrew. But uh, the other one you should all come to. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Have a great night. Thank you so much, Chacham. Good night.